This evening we're recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 19. And the subject will be the relation of prayer to revealed truth. And it is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. And those who are listening to this recording may, if they choose, share with us in this reading and switch off while we read together Psalm 72. Our subject this evening will largely revolve around the place occupied by prayer in the scheme of things. And we read this Psalm 72, which is a prayer. And the concluding verse says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Not meaning that he never prayed again, but that this was the goal of all his prayer. And the goal of all his prayer was the fulfilment of the promise that God had made to him that there should be his greater son one day sitting upon that throne and doing what he never did and could do. So you see, in a measure, all prayer can be compressed into the words which you'll find in one Old Testament text. Lord, do as thou hast said. There are some people's conception of prayer is that it was an invention on the part of God, maybe, to enable us to make God change his mind. Well, it's the other way around, friends. Prayer is rather that our minds should be changed to conform to what God's already planned. He's not going to alter his purposes because you sit up all night and have a prayer meeting. That's a contrast parable in the Gospel of Luke. The woman who badgered the unjust judge until he couldn't stand it any longer. It's a contrast parable. Like most of Luke's parables have got the contrast in them. And so you'll find uh, that if you know what the prayers of any particular dispensation are, you've got the colour of that dispensation. When our Lord was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, the same as John the Baptist teaches his disciples, he was going to give them a prayer that would enshrine, as it were, the centre of the teaching that was then in operation. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. And so you know that the period when that prayer was operative would be looking forward not to a spiritual church, but to a kingdom, spiritual it may be, but a kingdom on the earth. Well now, there's also other thoughts in connection with this question of prayer that we might mention in passing. It looks as though prayer is a two-way process. Or rather, should I put it this way, that there is a two-way process, and prayer is one of them. In the first, and this comes first, God speaks to me, and I listen. Now the marvel of it is, the other is, I speak to God, and he listens. How rude it is, isn't it, when we won't listen to when somebody speaks to us? Well, he expects us, when he speaks to us, to listen. And then he's ready for us to go back to him and largely be guided and moulded by that word which is already given us, that we may make our requests and enter into fellowship with our God by harmoniously walking and witnessing and living according to the truth revealed. And then when we are looking at this passage in Ephesians, as we shall in a moment, you'll discover that he bases this prayer upon the fact 
uh, that some things which are essential were already now in operation. He heard of their faith, and he heard of their love. But you say, surely that was wonderful enough. Oh, yes. But you know the Apostles' teaching can all be summed up in three words, whether it be before Acts 28 or afterwards. Faith, hope, and love. These three. It's embedded in Romans, it's, it's there in Corinthians. You'll find that the whole of 1 Thessalonians is written around the work of faith, the labour of love, and the patience of hope. And when he makes the second epistle to the Thessalonians, which was largely correcting a little error on their part, in the first chapter of the second Thessalonians, he's commending them that their faith is growing, and that their love is there, but he never says the word hope, because that's where they were a little bit going astray. So he says, oh, don't you think the day of the Lord will take place until, and he corrects it, you see. So, it looks as though the the teaching of the Apostle could be represented by a triangle, the three lasting phases of truth, faith, hope, and love. And until those three are together, it's not complete. And so he makes this prayer. The faith is there, the love is there, now I'm going to pray that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And then when you've done that, we can go on. Well, then there are other features we must not look upon teaching and those who are being taught as a mere mechanical process. It is very right, if you have the time and opportunity, to uh, make up your mind to read a chapter a day or go through the whole Bible in so many readings. But when it's all done, friends, it doesn't follow you're going to understand it or you're going to be any better if that's all it amounts to. You cannot, as it were, go along every morning and pour so much truth in as though you're pouring it out of a jug. We are constituted differently. We are moral agents. And it seems to me that God holds back certain things until we feel our need. You remember one passage in Scripture. It says, All these things will I do for you, yet will I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel. So he intends to do it but he doesn't do it till they want it and ask for it. Why, even the first man, Adam, was made conscious that it would be very nice if Eve would arrive before she did come. All the rest of the world were all in pairs all at once, but not so then. He was made to feel his need before it was provided. And that's where prayer comes in. We have to have a sense of need. And one of the words that are translated prayer in the scripture is just that, a sense of need, expressing that need. Well, then we're going to discover that in these prayers, which we find in the epistle to the Ephesians, there's a, a first prayer, and there's a second prayer, and there's a third prayer, and they have an order. The first prayer directs your attention to where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And the second prayer then directs your attention to Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. You notice which comes first? It directs your thoughts upward first and not inwards. If you start looking inside before the time, you may be very distressed. So you first of all become assured that at the right hand of God sits that one who loved you and died for you and rose again. 
And when that is firmly grasped and a part of your very spiritual makeup, then you can begin to pray the next prayer that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. And then the third prayer is suggestive. The, the third prayer in Ephesians balances the first prayer like this. The first prayer in Ephesians is, Paul says, I pray for you. And the last prayer says, now, you pray for me. The first prayer says, that there may be given unto you, that you may know. And he says, now you pray for me, that there may be given unto me, that I may make known to you. Don't you see? You can help answer your own prayers if you don't need prayer for the, pray for the other person. If you spend all the prayers on yourself, you may be blocking up, blocking up the very channel of blessing that would be God's answer. So, the first prayer is, I pray for you. And before the epistles is over, the great apostle himself stoops down and says, but don't forget, I need your prayer as much as you need mine. And that is, a, a, of course, healthy thing for us all to remember. Well now, one of the words that we're going to have a good deal to say about this evening will be the word translated knowledge. So shall we now come to this epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15, halfway through verse 19. I won't go into the reasons why we say halfway through, because it's simply a matter of the jigsaw puzzle perfectly fitting and uh, we'll have to accept it for the time being, otherwise time will go. Shall we read these words together? Ephesians 1.15 Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us ward who believe. And then he goes on and finishes, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, and so on. And then we're going on into the next section. First of all, will you notice the general disposition of the subject matter of this prayer? It's set out in the chart, which you have in front of you. And you will notice there's a curious construction. The first item starts with the Greek preposition kata, which means according to, or in harmony with. And there's a very curious wording here. Wherefore I also, after I heard of the according to you faith in the Lord Jesus, whatever is that. Well, we may say, well, I don't know. And then we may say, well, I think I see it means that each one of us have a relationship to the Lord according to our calling, according to God's purpose, according to whatever dispensation is obtaining at the time. And if we're on the right lines, our faith will be according to that very calling. The according to faith. Uh, the word can be translated in harmony with. A faith which is in harmony with the purpose of God at the very moment. So you see, not only do we need a faith that puts its trust in the finished work of Christ 
and brings about our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. But we want a faith that will embrace that distinctive character of our calling which makes the word of God so precious. And you'll see that that is echoed in the last member of this prayer, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe according to the working of his mighty power? It's another according. First of all, the faith we have is according to our position and his purpose. And then the inworking of that mighty power is according to the power that raised him from the dead. So that it's founded at beginning and end with this emphatic little word. Well then we have the, the bulk of the prayer is divided into two parts. That he may give and that you may know. The giving comes first and the knowing comes second. That he may give and that you may know. Well now before we uh, go further into this first prayer of Ephesians, let us notice that these prayers form an integral part of the epistle. The apostle doesn't write the epistle and say, now I've been praying for you, and then go on and tell them a bit more. But he tells them what he prayed. He puts the actual words down. And if you take these prayers out of the epistle, you pull the epistle to pieces, it falls to pieces, it won't stand. So you see, these prayers are an integral part of the book, and they've been written for our learning. I wonder how many times the children of God have actually used the prayers that are embedded in Ephesians. Well, nothing like the number of times that prayer which is in the Sermon on the Mount, that happens to be put into a prayer book, and everybody has to say it so many times on a Sunday. Now, we don't want to have another prayer book and make people say this, whether they believe it or want it or not. But it's evidently something, there's something remiss with regard to us. If we don't feel every now and again that those prayers and the words used are expressing just the very thing we need. So that's why they're there. But you will notice that these two prayers, the one in chapter 1 and the one at the end of chapter 3, keep pace together. The last thing you would imagine the Apostle Paul as having done was first of all to sit down and carefully write two prayers so that they kept step together. I don't think he knew what it, that he put them down like that. That was the superintendence of the Spirit of God seeing to that. But now we can sit and ponder them and read them. We discover that they were walking together step by step. So should we do that first of all? And it's already set out on this chart to guide you. First of all, the prayers are addressed to, in the first case, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now if you look at chapter 3, he says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's no problem when we speak about the Father, but there is a problem when we speak about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not the only place where it says, God, even thy God. You remember I'm quoting Hebrews 1. Now, I think the reason for this peculiar introduction here, coming at the first time, is this, that it's vital. These Ephesians were told that they were without God in the world. They had no fathers, no promises, 
No covenants, complete outsiders. Now, that was very different in the days of Israel. When Israel approached God, they approached God as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That was his title. Well now, I come along. I'm a Gentile. It's no good me approaching God as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob when the people of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are gone and blind. So I'm standing here, well, what can I do? Then our Saviour comes to me and says, it's all right. I'll be to you far more than Abraham, Isaac and Jacob ever was. For the moment, you pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be 10,000 times more wonderful than praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and all the lot put together. It doesn't touch the question of deity of Christ. It means to say that we poor uncovenanted Gentiles have got someone as our representative and we needn't think we've lost anything because Abraham wouldn't recognise us at the moment. So we've got the two modes of address. But in both cases, the prayer is addressed to the Father. Oh, I don't say that it would be quite wrong for a person to pray directly to Christ. I know one man who did, but then he, then he had all the right to be exceptional, for they were stoning him to death, and that was Stephen. But I think in the ordinary way, prayer recognises we need a mediator, that's why he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't bypass Christ and go direct to God in prayer because we're not ready for it yet. Sin has to be dealt with. Cleansing has to be arranged. Mediation is there. So, generally, the right attitude is we pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son under the guidance and illumination of the Spirit. And I believe that that would be the acceptable mode. But, of course, there may be occasions when circumstances will alter cases. So, here we have the prayers are addressed Now, in the first, first, first prayer that he may give. And in the second prayer, there is something that he may give. In the first prayer, it is that I give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In the second prayer, the word spirit comes in again. It says in um, verse 16, that he would grant you. Now nobody's going to quibble on that and say, oh no, no, the first prayer is that he may give. And the second prayer is in a grant. Well, that's only uh, another way of saying the same thing in, in English words. That he may give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with my Holy Spirit in the inner man. Well, that's very parallel. Then the next is, this gift to you in both prayers is that you may know. Now, the first one is found in um, 18 the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what the exceeding greatness of his power, a threefold prayer, that you may know hope and glory and power. Now when we come to the second prayer, it says that you may know, but it's only knowing one thing, and when he tells you what it is, he says, I don't think you're ever going to know it, it's going to beat you. Or you say, well, what's the good? Well, you'll understand, won't you, when we read it. <coughs> Verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, 
which passes knowledge. So there's one thing that we'll never know completely and fully, not in this life, but that shouldn't hinder us, it should be a spur, because however much you study, however much you grow, there'll always be something in the love of Christ which will be vaster and bigger than you can embrace. Well, there we come in both prayers to the word exceeding. And you'll notice I've put the Greek word on the side of it, hyperbello. In the noun form, it is hyperbole. And a hyperbole is an exaggeration. And if you're a very polite person and don't like to call a friend a liar, you say you're speaking in hyperbole. Of course, he might be just as much upset, I don't know. Now, a hyperbole is an exaggeration. That if it weren't God that was speaking, you wouldn't believe it. Why, that's a definition of the grace of God. It's so overwhelmingly wonderful that you can hardly believe it when you read it in the Bible. Now, what is this exceeding thing, which is at our disposal, friends? He's praying for the Ephesians. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us for to believe? All this talking about believing Christ and walking by faith is not a mere empty statement. It's got behind it the exaggerated power, if I may put it, that was raised, that was exerted when Christ was raised from the dead. In reading the Old Testament scriptures which speak of the creation, I don't think it says very much about the exceeding greatness of his power. It does speak about his power. But other passages say, he spake and it was done, just like that. Or as the uh, first chapter of Genesis, it says, let there be light, there was light. And if you could read the Hebrew and you could tolerate this, this is not, don't take it as a translation, but this is what you would see in that passage in Genesis. And God said, light be, and light be. Like that, just like that. But when it comes to raising the dead, this is where the mighty power of God is exhibited in a sense that no creative element is shown. Now that's the power that's behind your belief and mine. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Whether we've switched on yet. Whether we're really in contact. But it's there. That's our disposal. Well, on the other hand, this wonderful thing which is a hyperbole is the bit we've just mentioned. The love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That's this word again. The love of Christ is so beyond all understanding that it's almost like a hyperbole. It's something exaggerated. And uh, again, in this um, in this same prayer, the hyperbole comes again as a double one in verse twenty. This is the answer to the prayer. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly. So there's a there's a threefold exaggeration. The one the faith, the one the, the uh, love of Christ, and the other the answer to the prayer of the finish. Well then the means. The means in the first prayer is what we are in Christ. We're directed away from ourselves to where Christ sits at the right hand. And when that's established, you're then ready for the next prayer to look at where Christ is there in all his glory and then be 
strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, you see, you need it, don't you? For you're going to ask a very wonderful person to come in and abide with you. So he says, I pray you may be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So that's coming down. That's the second movement. And then we have the emphasis upon the power which is at our disposal. We have in chapter 1, which is walked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead. And this is the power that in works. Working in. And it is our word energy, as you can see, energia. And in the second prayer, it is the power that worketh in us, verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Worketh in us. To bring the prayer out and to bring the answer back. And then, in the, in the uh, last, in the first prayer, the might, because there's a, an accumulation of words for power here. This might is that which was wrought in Christ and leads us to resurrection. And the word might in the other prayer is associated with comprehending with all saints that you may be mighty enough. Our version says that you may be able. You want to watch this little word able because it sometimes stands for a greater sense of power than our English suggests. Sometimes it stands for the word dunamis or dunamio which gives us our word dynamite. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And so the word can. Can God and so on. What what verb in the English language gives you the word can? Not to can, is it? Can is a part of the verb to be able. That's our language. You see, it borrows from two different sources. But when it says can, it's got the word able behind it. And when it says able, it sometimes means mighty power. So every word, you see, is full. And so we've got the two prayers, and then the goal of these prayers. The first prayer leads on to this goal. Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's the title of this church. The title of this church is the fullness of him, that one, that filleth all in all. And the other prayer leads on to fullness. Verse 19, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with or up to all the fullness of God. Tremendous, isn't it? Do you notice the fullness is related to the believer here? When you come to Colossians, it's the other way around. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the one side. But that fullness dwells in him for us, for he had it without any act of God at all. It's because he laid aside his glory that he's taken it up again to share with you and me. So we can even call ourselves, when we remember that it's a title of the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now that's the way these two prayers walk together. Is it possible that that's not without design? Every item of it have got a perfect balance. Well now while we are dealing with the prayers, he has one more prayer embedded in the last verses 
of Ephesians 6. He says in verse 19, or in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me. There's no sort of high and mighty apostle here. Say, of course, uh, I pray for you, but I have no need of you pray for me. Oh, yes. And for me. That utterance may be given unto me. He wanted something. He said, I pray for you that something may be given to you. But he said, now I ask you to pray for me that utterance may be given unto me. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known. See, in the other prayer is that you may know. Now he says, I want you to pray that I may make known. Well, inasmuch as we learn most of, of the truth that we rejoice in through this apostle, the more, more they pray to the apostle, the more they get to know themselves, wouldn't they? And so he goes around in a marvellous little circle. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. And there you've got a man, if he lived in our day, would have appreciated the cockney humour. He was an ambassador. And he said, I've, I, I conduct an embassy in a chain, the last verse of Colossians. In a chain. I've got me chain of office. And it was on his wrist. You can't keep a man down like that. He rises above it. As he does, you remember, in that other passage in Second Timothy. He says, For which I suffer as an evildoer, even unto bonds. He says, But the word of God is not bound. Take it out of that if you will. You can't keep him down because he's got the one thing more than anything else in his view. As long as Christ is preached, he says, I rejoice. I won't go into the reason why they're doing it. Well, that's the spirit that this man has and the spirit we should seek to emulate. Well, now that means we must concentrate our attention for the rest of our time a little bit more on some of the great features in this first prayer of Ephesians 1, 15 to 19. (coughs) As we said, He's basing it upon the fact that there was faith and there was love. I think you might like to turn to Colossians and see that he was doing exactly the same thing when he wrote to that church so that uh, we get the benefit of the emphasis. Colossians 1 verse 4 Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and one of these times we shall have to deal with this title. If you go through the references in the authorised version, you'll find that Peter, and I think one other part of the New Testament, uses the word Christ Jesus. But if you keep to the revised text, you'll discover that no other writer in the New Testament ever uses the title Christ Jesus except Paul. Well, that's suggestive, isn't it? You see, all the titles of Christ have a meaning. Paul never speaks of him as Jesus of Nazareth when he's writing to the Ephesians or to you and to me. But in the Acts of the Apostles, when they were speaking to the very people who accused him of coming out of Nazareth and therefore had nothing, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this man stands before you. It was real. But when it emphasizes Christ Jesus, we're thinking of his title before we think of his human name. We're thinking of the one who is now exalted at the right hand. So he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love which you have toward the saints. For the hope which is laid up here in heaven. There he goes on and gives them further. And so he introduces there the faith, the love, and the hope. And he doesn't so much pray for them that they may the hope. Perhaps because he's already done so in Ephesians. And possibly because, as you remember in this Colossians, the last chapter, he says to them in verse 16, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and something that refers to the epistle to the Ephesians. And if it doesn't, it shows you that they interchange epistles, which was, of course, very reasonable thing to do, especially when there was only one uh, to start with, and it had to be written out by possibly a slave before anyone could get a copy. So, when we're studying, we've got them all bound in one book. We don't have to wait till the Church of Laodicea passes on their epistle to us. But what a thousand pities we don't do a good deal for comparison. They're there to, to be compared. And this epistle to the Colossians is all the time supplementing uh, a little bit that's not said in Ephesians. And Ephesians is not saying it all over again because it's already been said in Colossians. So that we'll never get to the bottom of it. But we shall get a good way further down if we really listen to the teaching of the scripture which says comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Well now then, we come back again to Ephesians 1. He says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That's very characteristic of the Apostle. Over and over again he writes to the different churches and even to individuals and he says, I thank my God for something or the other. I wonder sometimes whether he has to rake round a bit and discover something to thank God for, but apparently he did. If it was humanly possible to say something that was uh, helpful, he said it. And then of course he has to say, but in this now I'm going to write to you, I praise you not. The way he goes and he speaks sometimes very severely. But if a person does give you credit when it is due, you're more likely to listen to him when he says, you know, but you're not quite 100% yet and you're willing to let him speak to you. Well, now he says, I cease not to give thanks to you, I make mention of you my prayers. And this is the burden of my prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, it's this word knowledge, which we're going to hold us up for some time, but it is so important that I think you'll discover when we finish that it's well worth the time we spend upon it. I don't know whether you possess an Oxford Dictionary. It's the best dictionary that we have. It's the latest. And if you turn up the word knowledge, you'll find that our definition of knowledge, you know, uh, knowing something, is number seven on the list. That's not the first meaning of it. And do you know that when the words were first written in AD, I think it was 1535, we acknowledge thee, the Father of infinite majesty. You know those wonderful words in the tedium? Well, when that was first written, 
It was written like this. We knowledge thee, the Father of infinite, infinite majesty. Now, we couldn't say that today because we don't use the word like that. But the first meaning of the word knowledge is not to have your head stuffed full of facts, but to acknowledge what they mean, agree with what they teach, and be willing to walk in harmony with it. We acknowledge thee to be the Father is a greater thing than we have knowledge of thee. And the first meaning of this word, epignosis, Greek word, is not so much the stuff of knowledge, but having been told something, to acknowledge it, to recognize it, and to see, to con- conduct your life in harmony with it. Uh, will you lo- look at a few passages? Supposing we go to Matthew 7.16, where we have this word, knowledge. 7.16. Matthew. He says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Verse 20, Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Now surely that means you shall recognize them. It doesn't mean to say that these disciples or the common people of Palestine at that particular time, had passed with full honours in biology, horticulture, and all the other sciences necessary to know. Why, a scientist today doesn't know all that is yet to be known about fruit and flowers and growth and seed. They're still wondering at it. But the various peasant can distinguish between a thistle and a fig only by just recognition. That's the word, knowledge. So you see, it's a very false interpretation to say epignosis means full knowledge. doesn't mean full knowledge. It means standing there and recognizing without any great ability at all. Just the sheer fact of acknowledging. Or again in Luke 24.16, to get another illustration. 2416. And of course, all the time we're dealing with the same Greek word. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Well, of course, we should, we should today understand that, that they didn't recognize him. They had no idea about not knowing him. They didn't recognize him. And so, he had to open their eyes that they may see. So there we have two, two out of many ways in which this meaning is most certain and sure. Now we come to Ephesians itself, chapter 4. Here in this chapter 4 we have the gifts of the ascended Christ, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers with their work. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's this word. You see, we're in the practical section now. It's not so much any more doctrine being given you, but the acknowledgement of the Son of God. 
central in this idea of growth is the acknowledging of the Son of God. So you see, it's well worth pondering if these things enter into our calling and particularly influence our lives. Now will you come to Colossians because we'll have another passage. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. For this cause we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well we've got twice the word knowledge but it's this self-same word. So let us give it a bit more careful examination. First of all, I'll give you a revised rendering, just to, to help you to see the actual words that are used and the way in which we may have to revise the translation of this word knowledge. For this cause, namely, that you recognised or acknowledged the grace of God in reality, that is, as it says in chapter 2.17, you distinguish between the body and the shadow. For this cause, namely, that you acknowledge the grace of God in reality, and are manifesting this acknowledgement by fruit-bearing or increase, we do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled. And this fullness is none other than the acknowledgement of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You see, you, you gain rather than lose by putting this in its place. It shows you that acknowledgement is a way in which growth is encouraged. It's not something static, so much knowledge and that's the end. But as you acknowledge, so you grow and increase. What is it there a passage which says, Then shall ye know, if ye follow on to know the Lord. So acknowledgement of what you have been taught is the greatest help to being taught a little more. We have often said, haven't we, not only this meeting, but almost every meeting has had to say something like it. And look round and say, we're so-and-so. We haven't seen him this last few weeks or months. Oh, I'm afraid he's given us up. He's gone back. Say, so, well, why? Was it that he didn't understand? Was it that he couldn't follow the teaching? And somebody says, no. He understood it far too well. And he realised what it was going to mean if he went much further. Oh, I see. The fear of that. Bringeth a snare. Yes. It wasn't that he didn't know. It was that he wouldn't acknowledge. And you know, if you get to that position, there comes a moment when you may not be permitted to go on. You may bring yourself to a dead end. Will you look, I think, at a passage in um, Second Timothy, which gives you a little suggestion of this. <laughs> 2 Timothy, chapter 2. He says in verse 24, 
And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, for adventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now that's in the identical word which we've been looking at translated knowledge. So here the authorised version have put it right out. To the acknowledgement of the truth. What will be the consequence of acknowledging the truth? Look. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You see, the evil one can put you in bondage if you do not acknowledge the truth that God has revealed to you. And if you want to be delivered, there's one way out of it and one way only. Only acknowledge. Stand for what God has revealed and the fetters will fall. Oh, how many there are in bonds today that would be broken as easy as that if they only acknowledge the truth that God has revealed to them. What a dreadful thing this being fearful. Isn't it good for us to remind ourselves occasionally of the words, see she for a man whose breath is in his nostrils for what is he to be accounted of. We don't want to be slighting one another. We want to look at one another and realise we are precious in God's sight. We are his handiwork. We are the result of his redeeming love. But there's a moment when sometimes it's well to look at one another from another angle and say, and after all, why should I be afraid of you, brother? A closed peg will simply put you out of existence if it's gripped on tight enough. Just a few minutes and you're gone. See chief a man whose breath is in his nostrils. What is he to be accounted on? Is he going to intimidate me from acknowledging my Saviour and acknowledging what he's taught me because Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so may something, say something? You know the old Scotch motto under one of the coats of arms in Scotland? They say. What do they say? Let them say. Of course, we don't want to be quite so offhand as that, but occasionally it doesn't do us any harm to realise that's where we're going to be at the finish. And so we come on again to other sections of this. You don't mind going on, because if you get these words well in your mind and see that they're here, you're halfway on. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, Paul the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after Godliness. This is the way in which he introduces his letter to this man. The acknowledging of the truth which is after Godliness. And then it goes on with regard to the hope and the preaching and his address to Titus. And the Philemon while we stood up at this end of the New Testament, writing to Philemon, that little personal, private and lovely epistle, where he's pleading for a runaway slave, who now has become a believer, and he plays upon the meaning of the slave's name, you remember. The slave's name means unprofitable. And he was. Now he says, or if he comes back, don't inflict punishment on him. I think he may be now profitable to both you and to me. Uh, I'm still turning over my Bible in the wrong direction to find Philemon. 
And the, the verse is verse 6. Verse 6. Uh, verse 5, hearing of thy love and faith, is still on it, you see, with an individual. Hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. And the communication of thy faith may become effectual. How? By the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. It becomes effectual by acknowledging. Not merely by knowing, but by acknowledging. Well now, there's a few more passages where the authorised version itself has actually translated the word acknowledge. So I think we'd better have them all, don't you, before we finish it. We'll go back now to the 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 37. Uh, this is rather a, a severe little word of rebuke in this verse. He says in verse 36, What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Let him acknowledge. So you see, the translators have more than once, quite a number of times, rendered this very word, acknowledge. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. He says in verse 17, I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaeus, Archaicus. For that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge ye them that are such. Acknowledge them. Now we come to 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 13. For we write no other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge, even at the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part. And then, oh that's the, that's the complete title. I've gone to the trouble of looking up these other references because there are one or two friends that I know who have come to the conclusion that there is no passage where it should be translated acknowledge. But it looks to me as though the boots on the other foot. There are many passages which are translated knowledge which would give greater meaning and a truer rendering if they were all this idea of recognising and acknowledging what God had already revealed. Uh, just a, a last look back at Ephesians 1 before we bring this session to a conclusion. Ephesians 1. That he may give unto you a wise and revealing spirit in the, in the acknowledgement of him or for the acknowledgement of him. There's no word in in this verse. So if we, if we take the margin instead of the, of the uh, actual words, before we can truly acknowledge him, we have to have a wise and revealing spirit, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Or as he puts it in verse 18, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now that's not a part of the prayer. That's put in brackets. It's said like this, oh of course, of course, I'm assuming that the eyes of your heart, as some texts read, have been enlightened. Uh, if, you, if you're among those people who say, well I don't see it. Oh, this is, we've got to go back then. It's no good going any further. Because there are some people you know who think that's a complete answer. They don't see it. But of course it might mean they're blind, might it? But they don't see that either. It's no reputation of any truth that you say you don't see it. Of course if nobody ever sees it, well then you may begin to think that perhaps this one person is suffering from an illusion. But you can imagine a blind man saying, well I don't see it, but he wouldn't prove anything, would it? Or friends, if you ever get into that position and you have to say that, well say it in a sense that I might be nevertheless blind, I might be nevertheless wrong. And so his, his point is all the way through here. He prays that you may have this wise and revealing spirit in order that you may acknowledge him. But he says, of course, I'm assuming that the eyes of your understanding have been enlightened. If they haven't, well, you may have to go back on your story and discover why not. And he's on this idea of enlightenment in chapter 3, you remember, with particular reference to this high and wonderful calling, as it's put in verse 9, and to make all men see, which is not the verb to see, but which is again this word, to enlighten. As we read, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to enlighten all as to what is. To enlighten. So when you have the word enlighten, it assumes that you've got vision. It's not asking that your eyes may be opened, but your eyes being opened, that you may have light. Because if you've got eyes open in a dark room, you can't see. But the presupposition is you have got eyes open before you can do anything. So he says, you've got faith, you've got love. It's an evidence that your eyes have been open to see. Now I pray that you may go on and go further. And as we said, his prayer is threefold. The hope, the glory, and the power. And those three, we hope to give our attention when we meet together at our next meeting. Shall we be satisfied with this analysis this evening? Having seen the two great prayers and the way they walk together, and if you would like to supplement, you'll find that Philippians 1 has got its prayer just the same as Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. These three great prison epistles have all got a prayer embedded in the very epistle itself. An eloquent testimony to you and me that it will be fatal if we think that it's sufficient to come to a meeting and read the Bible or in our own homes to read the Bible if we do not occasionally put it the other way around and say, Lord, thou hast been speaking to me. Oh, now I want to speak to thee. So I'm going to end with one verse which you'll find in the book of Numbers, chapter 7, verse 89. It's one of those passages I can't forget, even my mind doesn't lose 7, 8, 9. Numbers 7, 8, 9. Here it is. It shows you that when we are in the spirit of Ephesians 1 and its prayer, 
We're not sitting at a desk. We're not in a school. We're drawn near to the very presence of God through the mediation of his son. This is to do, of course, with the tabernacle and with Moses. But we can let it speak to, our, to us. And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, now that is Moses going in to speak to God, isn't it? Then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him. Oh, yes. If you go in to speak with God, he'll speak with you. <coughs> from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim and he spake unto him and there's no man living can tell you who the he is and who the him is does it mean and he Moses spoke to him God or does it mean that he God spoke to Moses him it doesn't matter friends that's what was happening that was the two-way element, you see. Moses spoke to God and God spoke to Moses and in between the two speakers was the picture in the Old Testament of the finished work of Christ. So all our Bible study should be conducted in that atmosphere. And those of you who have been reading perhaps the articles in the Brian Expositor where we're dealing with Ephesians, you know that we call this section that we've been just entering tonight the Chapel of acknowledgement. We've come out of the room where we've had the, unit, the documents, the muniment room of this great house, and now we've gone into the chapel of acknowledgement. There, on our knees, to hear the, the voice of the Lord, and believing with wondrous joy that he even condescends to listen to us.